0: testing. Good morning, I'm Shirley. Today's text hi, is Luke 15, through 32. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth with wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in great need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the the pigs were eating, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found.
1: Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I bring greetings from Pastor Tim, who uh, at this moment is in Cookville, Tennessee, living his fitness dreams, hanging out with a guy named Rich Froning. You can Google it now if you want to. It's quite amazing. This is his CrossFit crush, Rich Froning's five-time CrossFit Games champion. Uh, And he's out there getting trained by the best coaches in the world. And he worked out five times yesterday. Normal humans, we work out maybe once a day. Crossfitters were a little crazy. He worked out five times yesterday. Brought three t-shirts into 96 degree weather, 90% humidity. Had to buy a fourth shirt from the gift shop because he sweated through the three that he brought with him and then had to eat the rest of the day just to make up for all the calorie deficit he was in. And he did it all with a giant smile on his face because this is how he fills his soul. This is how he fills his tank, by doing perilously difficult things. Uh, And I think he's the elder statesman of the group because everybody there is in their 30s. Most CrossFitters are younger people. And Tim is uh, representing... Uh, the older CrossFit community, well, so pray for him, his recovery. But man, he is in hog heaven. He is in hog heaven. I'm happy to report the pig has recovered from COVID, and uh, and will soon be uh, be meeting his fate, uh, hopefully sometime during Labor Day. But thanks so much for your prayers, everybody. Thank you so much. Uh, Those of you who don't know the backstory of that, um, I got sick, my family went down with COVID two weeks ago, and we quarantined, and we did all the things, and everybody was super great, and it's just incredibly inconvenient, amen, getting COVID, incredibly inconvenient. My wife almost lost all her marbles, hanging out in her room, she was the patient zero in our home, was in in our room, in quarantine, isolated from the family for six straight days, and uh, she had serious FOMO by like day four and was literally at the door, listening to what we were talking about, <laughs> shouting, what are you guys watching? So we were watching television together. Thankfully, everybody's better, and, uh, and we are all on the mend and testing negative. Oof, so good. But thank you for your prayers, for your support. What an incredible time. I tell you what, if you want to take a break from things, getting COVID is a really fast way to sort of have everybody leave you alone for a couple of weeks. Everything kind of goes into shutdown. Can't do that, can't go there, can't run that errand, can't do that thing. So, you know, if you need a little break, a little solitude, a little alone time, I, uh, I recommend it, pass the, the lollipop around. <laughs> don't do that, by the way, don't do that. Anyway, thank you so much. Uh, it is so good to be with you guys. Uh, Tim is on a much needed, well-deserved break the month of July, so I just encourage you to enjoy uh, as we have some guest speakers coming in later this month. I'll be up this week and next week, and so we have some other voices here in Pulpit, so be thinking of him and praying for him, and we'll welcome him back in August, uh, raring to go, hopefully, without any more bumps and bruises. (laughs) So thank you, Shirley, for reading uh, our our lengthy parable today, and uh, it's such a familiar one, one that maybe... Uh, you've heard before. Whether you go to church or not, this is one of the most famous passages of scripture that we know about. You know, Renoir wrote, uh, uh, sorry, painted a beautiful sort of representation of the interaction of the Father and the Son. It's one of the most famous paintings in the world. And so we have this this story captured in many different ways, uh, even in our uh, sort of psyches. And I just want us to sort of try to set aside all of our notions and understandings of this passage because sometimes our familiarity can cause us to miss out on sort of nuggets of wisdom, things that you see. In fact, I went back to this passage over and over again in preparation and I realized there were things going on in the passage that I had not seen before or that I had not remembered in many years. And so I just want to tease you with this fact. This story is not about one prodigal son. There's actually two sons in this story, and they're both lost. I don't know if you caught that. They're both lost. They're both confused, but in very, very different ways, as is often the case with brothers, right? And so we see this story unfolding. Today we're going to talk about the more famous of the two sons, and next week we'll have a chance to take a closer look at this older son that we have this interaction with at the end of the passage, and we'll discover that he is similarly lost and similarly broken, and similarly in need of forgiveness and grace and the love of his father to bring him back. So we've got these two different bros. And I identify with this story in so many ways because I'm a younger brother. I'm a second son. And I think about this younger brother, and I think, man, he's just running. He's just out there. He's taking off. And I think about the dutiful, right, responsible obligated older brother, sounds a lot like my brother Wayne, right? And I can hear him complaining in much the same way at, uh, at our dad for, for maybe showing different kind of favoritism over the years. So I identify with this story, maybe you have similar experience. So we have these two different kind of paradigms, if you will, of relationship to the father. And we might expand that, two different paradigms of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a Christian in that relationship. One, the younger son represents what we might call a relativist. Someone who's just out there, you know, wanting to push the envelope, wanting to experience things, wanting to explore and to understand more deeply, to ask probing questions, to flee, to see. The other brother might be called a moralist, right? Somebody says, I've worked all these years. I've been slaving away. Never once have I disobeyed an order that you gave me. I've done everything right. And I'm still angry. You see it? I'm still frustrated. I'm not healed. Something is off. And I'm bringing this struggle to you. So we look at this first son. And as we look, I'm sorry, as we look at the second son, the younger son... Both of these brothers teach us something about how it is that we experience transformation in our lives. And I'm not talking about like ultimate transformation. I'm talking about incremental change. How do we experience moments of change and transformation in our lives? Whether that's a big moment at the beginning of our journey or if it's an ongoing kind of transformation that we need to experience as we continue to try to follow Jesus and be in relationship with him. It's one thing to know that the Father loves you. It's another thing to experience a deeper sense of connection and intimacy. This is where transformation takes place, right? So what's the first thing? Let's jump right in. What is the first thing that has to happen in order for change and transformation to occur, right? Some of us refer to this popularly by your come-to-Jesus moment, right? You ever had one of those? A come-to-Jesus moment. You might call it a light bulb, a light switch. Something happens. You have a critical moment of awareness. Sometimes we'll describe that as hitting rock bottom. Sometimes we have to find the bottom of wherever it is that we're falling before transformation can start to take place. And we have those come-to-Jesus moments. And in this case, we see this moment, we call it maybe coming to the Father. He describes it in verse 17 as this. It's coming to his senses. Coming to his senses. Refreshing and renewing his awareness. Verse 17 says this. When he came to his senses, he realized how many of my father's hired hands have food to spare. And look at me. I'm longing for the pods that the pigs are eating. And I know a thing or two about pig ranches because I visit them, or I used to visit them a couple of times a year to do our pig roasts. And so you go to the pig farm, and it's in an unusual place as a city guy, right? I don't know if any of you grew up on a farm or grew up around pigs, but it's an extraordinary smell, by the way. I don't think that anyone could describe it to you when you open up the door of your car, right? And we're in El Prado anyway, so it smells like poop out there just on the regular. But then when you get really close to all the farm animals, there is an incredible odor that takes place. And then you go to the pig pen. They're separated by size and by style. And you sit there and you look at them, and you see the conditions that they live in. Though, I mean, they're pretty nice, I guess, by pig standards. But I have this visceral response when I start to think about what it must have been like for this son to be so desperate, so despairing, that he wanted to get into the pig pen and eat what the pigs were eating, the slop that the pigs were eating. Just a little word picture to kind of grab that moment. If we had smell-o-vision, it would be amazing. But he comes to his senses in this moment, right? This is when he has his rock bottom, come to Jesus, sort of light bulb moment. And listen to what it says in 2 Timothy as Paul touches on this same idea of coming to your senses. In chapter 2, verses 25 to 26, it says, Those who oppose him must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. There is a relationship between repentance, transformation, and coming to your senses. These words are all kind of tied to the same experience because we learn that repentance is at the center of experiencing transformation. And repentance is just a fancy Bible word for stopping where you're going, stopping moving in the direction that you're heading, realizing that that's not the direction that you need to head in, having a clearing of your mind, turning and running in the other direction. You ever had that experience? Internally? Maybe you physically have this experience. You're moving in a particular direction, motivated by different emotions, different ideas, different thoughts, different conclusions, assumptions that you have, moving out of your own pain, out of your own hurt, out of your own story. And then all of a sudden you have a light bulb moment that turns us around. You okay? Sorry about that. She's startled. I clap my hands. Oh, so exciting. Sorry about that. And you move in the other direction and you run because you realize you're moving in the wrong direction. Escape from the trap of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will. So this is one of the great marks of Jesus' sort of new paradigm. You have to begin to see yourself and your situation clearly. I'm moving in the wrong direction. I need to turn around and move toward a more favorable direction. And in this case of the younger brother, he realizes within himself what he's really done how he got to where he is in this moment. I'm going to go back to my father, and I'm going to repent. You see, his big sin in the story is asking for his inheritance. Did you catch it? Right? This doesn't sound particularly troubling, but if you're a Middle Eastern, right, ancient Near East son, not only are you a son, but you are a second son. And being a second son is sort of like, it is, it's really like second fiddle. First sons get the lion's share, right? I'm not bitter, I promise you. <laughs> right? Second sons, not so much, right? I describe being a second son like being the daughter they never had. It's kind of how it works in ancient Near Eastern culture, also true in Asian culture. So here we are. Son goes to his father and says, give me my share of the estate. And the father obliges, shockingly. Henry Nowlin uh, wrote a book about the prodigal son and he interviewed people from different parts of the ancient Near East and said, what would this, what would this mean to you if your son came to you and said, give me my share of, my, of the estate? while the father was still living. And most people would say that would never happen. That would never happen. That's like a a, a totally bananas idea. We would never even entertain the thought of this conversation. One other father said, well, of course, we would beat that son. We would just beat them on the spot, because that's the most ridiculous thing we've ever heard, right? And other people would join in the fight because it was so offensive. I said, the reason it's so offensive is because asking for your share of the estate to be given to you before your father is dead is tantamount to saying, I wish you were dead. I want you dead. And more to boot, I want your things. I want your things that go to me. Not only do I want the things that are mine based on inheritance. I want you dead. I want them now. So the father no longer has the ability to live off of his own assets. You can kind of see how absurd this is getting. Give me my share of the property. So the father literally liquidates a portion of his home, his possessions, his assets, cashes out his stuff, gives it to his younger son in a one, one lump payment, which he loads into a carriage that used to belong to his father, and he takes off and spends it all. This is the picture that we're painting. A picture of absolute rejection. A picture of absolute, uh, sort of unabashed selfishness on behalf of the younger son. And the question that remains is, why? Why would he do it? Why would he want everything and run? He was already the second son of a relatively wealthy man. He had access to his father's wealth. He had access to this estate that he wanted a part to be a part of. He just wanted to be out. He wanted to go out on his own. He wanted to go see what was out there. And so it's in the midst of this that we realize that he didn't want just things. He wanted independence. He wanted autonomy. And he wanted control over his own life. He wanted that freedom. And this is really important for us to dig into because this is the essence of sin. This is the essence of what plagues us, I think, as human beings, our obsession with personal freedom. Sin is not about breaking laws. That's an old paradigm. Sin is not simply about avoiding bad behavior. Sin is actually breaking a law or keeping a law in order to gain control. You see it? The relativist and the moralist do the same things. The relativist breaks the law. Breaks the law, breaks the law, breaks the law. Shall I keep on sinning that grace may abound? The moralist keeps the law. Keeps the law ardently obsessively, religiously, keeps the law. I did everything that you have ever obeyed me. I've never once disobeyed you, and yet you realize he's still angry? He's angry because he doesn't have control. He doesn't have power over his father. doesn't have power over his father's affections and possessions in the ways that he's been wanting to achieve them. Do you see it? Sin is not just about avoiding bad behavior. Sin is about keeping or breaking the law in order to gain control over your own life. It's a hugely important distinction, and it's at the root of why both of these brothers are lost. So Jesus, in essence, is saying, I don't care so much about what you're doing. It's not about the what. It's about the why. Why do you do it? Why did you do it? And I have this this image in my mind. When I was in middle school, I want to say I was in the 6th or 7th grade. I think I've told this story. I had this silly idea. I had some friends. We were over at the Hillsdale Mall, and there was a Sears. And we saw some video games on the shelf. And like a bunch of raving lunatics, we decided to steal them. And so we did. And we got caught, because we were bad criminals, we were idiots. We got caught. There's cameras everywhere in Sears. Bunch of loonies, right? And so the whole day I'm stuck in this office waiting for my mom to pick me up, which is probably the most terrifying feeling, right? Slightly less terrifying than the car ride home when I knew my dad would be sitting on the couch, right? Terrifying car ride home, very quiet. And I remember sitting on the couch and my dad was just kind of searching. He didn't know what to do with me. And I grew up in relative privilege, a very comfortable life. I had video games. Right? It wasn't like I needed more video games. I had video games. There was just something about this moment because my brain wasn't fully developed. It seemed like a good idea at the time. And my dad sat there. And his number one question that he just wanted to know so badly, and he made me write an essay about it, because that's what Asian dads do to punish their children. They make them do homework. And so I remember sitting there, and he asked me, I says, I want, he, very quietly, he was a kind of a yeller, but he didn't yell at me in this moment, which is scarier, by the way. He said, I want you to write me an essay, and explain to me why you did it. Tell me why. I think at the, in his heart of hearts, he was really crushed by my decision that day, because in essence, and this is the key, in essence, what I was telling him with my behavior was that what you have given me and what you provided was not enough. And I needed to go out and I needed to go have something else that was off limits. And I was willing to break the law in order to get something that I wanted because my life was somehow incomplete. Do you see it? Do you see the why? Why the why is so important, so crucial? Because we're not just talking about behaviors. We're not talking just about uh, things that we do and that we don't do. We're talking about relationship. Sin, is ess- in its essence, is not behavioral. It's relational language why the why is so important. This is what he realizes. Sin is perhaps at its core seeking a home where there is no home. Seeking a relationship and a dynamic where it doesn't exist. And so we chase and we chase and we chase. You see it? He goes out and tries to find a home, a place where he can feel accepted and where he can belong, and what he discovers that his home is back with his father. and That mending needs to happen as part of that repentance. Henry Nowlin's book on page 37 of the story of the prodigal son, it says, Home is the center of my being where I can hear the voice that says, You are my beloved, and on you my favor rests. The words of God the Father over Jesus. Right? Baptized with the Spirit in that moment. You see, when you, when you leave your home because you want your independence, you want to go rogue, when you leave your true home in the Father, you move away from the control of your Heavenly Father. You don't really gain control over your life. You simply end up just giving that control to something else or to someone else. Have you had that happen? Where you say, I'm done with this, God. I've been following you and I've been doing all the things and I just don't feel fulfilled. And so you go and you pursue something else, a relationship, a job, an activity, a club, whatever it is, a behavior, an addiction. And that thing, because you've given it control, you've given it the role of having your identity bound up in it, You don't just gain control. You don't gain control over your own life. You give it to something else. And now that thing's got you. And it's defining you in ways that were unexpected and hidden. And that's why he's living wildly, this second son, because he's out of control, squandering his life, trying to find a home where there is no home. And so he comes to his senses. We ask this question. As he comes to his senses, how does it happen? This is a really fascinating moment that I miss over and over again. And I think it's a powerful reminder for us in terms of how repentance, how transformation actually comes about. You actually have to be loved into your senses. You have to be loved into your senses. Look at what it says in verse twenty. 22. It says, while he was still a long way off, he's making his long journey home, right? This is the car ride in mom's car back from Sears. It's a long ride. It's a quiet ride. He's contemplating in his mind, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? And while he was still a long way off, the father seized him coming down the road, filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kisses him. And the son says to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father stops him. and says, quick, bring the best robe. Bring a ring. Go get the fattened calf, right? Which was the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of a pig. Pig roast. The father's response to the son is what precipitates his repentance. He comes to his senses and he doesn't get scolded. He doesn't get beaten. He doesn't get rejected. All of which I think were valid responses. Things that definitely would have happened under normal human circumstances. But that's not the father that we see in this picture. right? No shame No killing of the son. That would have been on the table under these circumstances. This father is different. He's merciful and he's gentle and he's loving. And he buys the son time to come to his senses. And the father does something totally unexpected. He runs to the son. And maybe we have a a radically beautiful romanticized version of of sort of Western dads, right? But growing up with immigrant parents and being around immigrant families, both in Korea and in the Middle East where I lived as a boy, I'll tell you now, dads don't run. (laughs) They don't run and they certainly don't run out. They sit and they wait. And you come to me. You see it? This is how many cultures operate. And so the fact that there's this dad who's waiting, anticipating, gets up and runs. These are pictures that are just blowing the minds of readers up everywhere. And I read this story and I think this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. It's never happened. Right? There would be a fire and my dad wouldn't run. Right, It wasn't going to happen. There's no way we see this picture taking place. And this embrace precedes the son's speech. He doesn't even have a chance to get a word out. The father is there smothering him and welcoming him and celebrating him and embracing him. Even though that son smells stinks, and he's dirty, and he's grimy, and he's the most beautiful thing the father had ever seen. There are these unexpected moments that have power to connect us to those stories, right? When I was reading this, I immediately thought of a story of grace. I have a handful of stories of grace with my dad, who was not kind of in his own a gracious man, right? And I was about maybe 10 years old. I was somewhere in the fourth grade, maybe the fifth grade. we had some guests coming over for dinner. And so my responsibility was rice bowls, because you know everybody in the family's got a job. My responsibility was rice, not an unimportant task in a Korean household. And so I had this tray of rice bowls, right? And I was carrying, and there were eight bowls of rice, right, teetering on this on this tray, and I was 10, and it was a nerve-wracking moment because there were guests, and it was kind of an important time, and my dad was sitting at the table, and I'm walking, and you can imagine what's about to happen. I lose control of the tray. They teeter off, and all of the rice bowls fall to the ground. (laughs) We don't have rice with our meal, right? And I immediately look up and think, well, it's been a good life, (laughs) it's been a good life I had 10 good years I look up at my dad and to my shock and awe he doesn't get mad at me he just looks at me and in a very quiet way just says ah it's okay and I remember sitting there thinking to myself like is this some kind of weird reverse psychology like He's saying it's okay, but it's not okay. (laughs) I've seen that story before. And I said, wow. And I just began picking up the bowls and scooping up the rice. And I don't remember anything else about that meal other than that moment. And I have very few memories like that, but that one has stayed with me because it was a picture of grace. Grace. It was a picture of forgiveness that I knew I didn't quite deserve. I had done something wrong and I wasn't met with the punishment I anticipated, right? I didn't have to run away. And in a way, with his words, my dad reached out to me in that moment. And that was powerful for me. You see, we don't have to just come to our senses within ourselves it's a relational dynamic. It's not just about behaviors. If it was just about behaviors, we might be able to self-help our 12-step our way into fixing our own problems, but this is not just about behavior. It's about relationship, and so because it's about relationship, we need to be loved into our senses. Repentance finds its completion when we experience the kiss of the Father. Do you see it? The embrace of the Father is critical for us. It is essential to understanding what a life of righteousness and what a life in relationship with the Father is all about. We have to have that. And so if we're living a Christianity that's simply about rules and regulations and about relative goodness and about morality and about law and about scripture and interpretation and we've intellectualized and maybe isolated ourselves in a particular way because of our faith, we're missing out on an absolutely essential dynamic that we have to have when it comes to real and radical transformation. We've got to have that touch of the Father. We've gotta have it. And I don't say that lightly. I think that that's actually very difficult. That's a very difficult thing to experience, particularly if you grew up in a home or with a father, or a heavenly, an earthly father who didn't express those things to you freely and openly Understanding the love of our Heavenly Father is very difficult, very foreign, missing from our experience, and so there is a healing and a restoration that has to take place. Are you with me? Not work to be done, but critical, critical, critical work. So you've got to have a dad like this. You've got to have a father like this, which, by the way, is unique to Christianity, No other major religion in the world is going to tell you that your Heavenly Father comes running for you, by the way. Comes running for you. Nowhere else will you find that. You can go look. It's not there, right? We struggle with this image of the Father because we think it can't be that easy. Nothing can be free. Nothing can be that simple. Anything good has to be hard. It's got to be difficult. Not so with grace. So how do we get the Father's kiss? We come to our senses. We're loved to our senses. How do we experience that father's kiss? How are we loved into our senses? And here's the thing. We've got to have an older brother who fits the bill. We've got to have a true older brother who fits the bill. We'll talk about this older brother in next week's sermon, but we need a real, a true older brother. Look at Look carefully at when the father brings his son in. The younger son's part of the estate has already been liquidated, sold, and squandered. It's gone. What is left essentially to the only remaining brother. All the things that are about to happen belong essentially to the older brother's estate. Do you see it? Right? There's only two brothers, right? You get your part, the rest of it's mine. Maybe that's why this particular brother in story is a little bit, you know, bent out of shape because he seems a little stingy, a little condescending, and he's like, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's my robe. That's the ring you were going to give me. Fattened calf, that's my fattened calf. (laughs) Right? And you're throwing this big party and making all this ruckus over that ingrate younger brother of mine who ran away and squandered his estate. We should just leave him. He's wanting to keep everything to himself. Because you see, forgiveness, friends, isn't actually free. Grace is actually not free. It's fascinating. It's free to us. Free for us to receive. There's nothing that we can do to lay hold of it, but it's not free. Somebody had to pay for it. Do you know who it was? Your older brother, Jesus. You got a robe because his clothes were stripped from him. You get to go free because he was held captive. You get life because he was killed. Do you see the exchange that's taking place? This is just one picture of what salvation really looks like and what freedom and forgiveness mean for us, right? Right? Jesus gave up his portion of the estate, if you will. Coming down to earth, being made in human likeness. He didn't have to do that. Right? We have no idea what palace he gave up to be with us, and that's what he chose in that moment. That's what drove the Father to run out to the son. And a price was paid. He freely gave everything to us on that day so that we could become wealthy. And so I just wanted you to ask this question as you spend this week maybe ruminating in this passage. Go back into this story and see if you can find yourself in it. But is your brokenness keeping you from coming home? Keeping a keeping you from moving more deeply into his presence in your life? Is your relative goodness, the saving of yourself, keeping you from moving closer to him in your relationship with him? Come home to your father. He's awaiting. He's already accepted you. He's ready to run in your direction. The things that keep us from him are nothing, nothing compared to his will to be with you, to be near you. Let's pray together.